0: The topic that that I was asked to cover is uh, deference and tolerance. And uh, the passage we're looking at today is Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. But I'll be really focusing on Ephesians 4, verse 2, almost entirely on on verse 2. But I've provided for you in your handout um, three different renditions of this passage. And the purpose of that is so that you'll see the synonyms that are used uh, for the words that Paul incorporates into his uh, admonition of the church at Ephesus. But uh, from the New American Standard, Therefore, I, uh, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, and then verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, Purpose Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The King James is, uses lowliness and meekness and long-suffering and forbearing one another in love. And then a uh, modern rendition that's similar to the um, ESV, I suppose, in the way it's rendered, but always be humble. I, I think it's helpful in the way it unpacks this. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So four aspects that we'll be looking at. And then I've grouped them with synonyms. So humility and lowliness are the same words: gentleness, meekness, patience and long suffering, and tolerance and forbearing. And then as the NLT, the New Living uh, makes it. Uh, it Uh, making allowance for each other's faults which I think is a helpful way to to look at what that that word means but uh, John Stott uh, in his treatment of this passage just a a brief highlight he's describing the transition that Paul is making in Ephesians and I'm just trying to give you the the setting for what's being described here he says now the apostle turns this is in chapter 4 from exposition that would be chapters 1 through 3 to exhortation he's moving from what god has done the indicative to what we must do and be that's the imperative from doctrine to duty and then he said that paul is talking about down to earth concrete implications in everyday living and that's exactly right where we're really going with this treatment of ephesians 4 1 through 3 is really one of the most pivotal sections in all of scripture for maintaining peace It's it's the sine qua non of a church being able to conduct itself in a a loving manner. And to the extent that these graces are absent, then the enemy in our own flesh has every possibility of coming in and sowing seeds of discord. And I've seen that. Perhaps you have as well. I've seen this played out. These graces lived out in a church will cause the body to live and to love as well, to live and to love. And, and without them, we will not live in love as we are called to, to do those things. An overview, and this is from Lib Duncan, um, and I'm just going to fly over this, but I, I want you to see the, the general treatment of Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and then we'll unpack verse 2 in, in great detail. He's talking about the fact that he says, if I were going to describe the two basic ideas that Paul is describing here, in ephesians 4 1 through 3 in this transition in particular what is what he's dealt with before is number one that god has brought us from being an alienated humanity spiritually alienated to being a reconciled humanity and that's why that's because of the grace of the lord jesus christ in reconciling us to a holy god And through his mercy and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled a people to himself who were once enemies, once not a people, once in rebellion, and now friends, now family, now forgiven. From an alienated humanity to a reconciled humanity. So he's dealing with what has gone on beforehand. And and this actually helps us to understand what Paul is saying as he moves into chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Then on page 2, he says, The second is this. We've come from a fractured humanity to a unified humanity. Whereas once there was great dissension and fracturing and animosity among ourselves as humanity in view of the fall, through Christ, through being united to one common Lord and Savior, we've been brought into a family which is no longer in contention and in a state of fracture, but has been unified, enjoying communion and shared life and fellowship together. And he says two things. uh, that What's happened is that God has reconciled sinners who did not love him to himself. That's dealing with the spiritual alienation that we had apart from Christ, that God has taken men and women who did not love God, and he has reconciled them to himself so that they love God. And secondly, that he has reconciled sinners who did not love each other to themselves. And so you've got this vertical dimension where God has reconciled lost men and women to himself, the vertical dimension, the spiritual dimension. And then it's played out on a horizontal level where the differences between men and women that once were apart from Christ had new hearts, are now joined together in the body of Christ, and they had really nothing in common apart from Christ. But now that they are in Christ, they have everything that matters together, and they love each other. And this is really foundational because he goes on to say, and it says, we are to be a foretaste of, of, the, of the age to come, an outpost of heaven right here in this world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but that's exactly right. The, the church is to be a, an outpost of heaven right here. And to the extent that we are living out Ephesians four one, two, 2, and 3, notably verse 2, we will be that, and we will bring honor to the one who has reconciled us to himself. To the extent that we are not exhibiting that, we will bring dishonor to the very one who has reconciled us to himself. So he goes on to say in these three verses, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, rich verses indeed, Paul tells us three things. He exhorts us to live out our calling as Christians. Chapter 4, verse 1, I exhort you, I implore you to to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to love the family of God in Jesus Christ. And that's really, verse 2 is about what does it mean to love the family of God. That's what these four graces that we'll look at, these four virtues deal with. And then the result is to keep the peace in that family. So when you have chapter 4, verse 2 being played out, you will be living in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. And you will be being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's verse 2. It's those graces, those virtues in verse 2 that make all of this possible. And all of those attributes, all of those graces are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That we, we are new creations Whereas once we were not capable of doing these things, now not only are we capable, but we are summoned to do each and all of these things. So so Paul is very specific about what he's calling us to do as a body. So the top of page three, and this is, I think, a very important point. He says, the Apostle Paul is saying, friends, your witness to the world is dependent upon the manifestation of my grace in your families.'" and in your church family, as to how you love one another. Now, I've seen situations where a God-fearing church was literally split because these virtues were not being played out, and it was painful. I've I've literally lived through that. And it was not a good testimony to the watching world. It was a terrible testimony to a watching world, and it happens. I, I hope you've never experienced that. I have, but I'm telling you it happens frequently, and the enemy loves nothing more. And to capitalize on our own uh, fleshly nature, which we still battle with sin. We still each and every one of us battle with sin, and the enemy loves to capitalize on these things. But these four graces will allow us to live in a manner and to love in a manner that brings honor to the very one who has redeemed us. So, just a quick flyover, and then again, we'll, we'll unpack this. What are these four graces? He says, first, humility not standing on your own personal merits it's not about me i'm not smarter than anybody else i'm not more righteous than the next guy i don't don't know better than everybody else it's going to start with the effacement of self and the attack on pride and the mortification of the flesh flesh and the cultivation of gospel humility now I'm going to emphasize this in a moment, but my, my thesis, just so you'll know where I'm going, it's, my thesis is that humility is literally the catalyst for everything that happens, that these other graces flow out of humility, and to the extent that humility is not present, the antithesis of humility is pride, and where you see these other virtues absent, it's because of pride. Where you see them being exhibited, it's because of humility. That's my thesis, and I, and I will show you how I came to that conclusion. So the the foundational virtue is humility. Then he says gentleness, not demanding our personal rights. Then patience or forbearance, forbearance towards the personal offenses from others. The the one thing that we always will encounter in life is friction. There will be differences. There will be different points of view. There will be different preferences. There will be inclinations. People will say things, do things. Conduct themselves in such a manner that rubs us the wrong way. Whether it should or shouldn't, it does. It happens. We, we have to show forbearance. We'll, we'll talk about what that looks like. And then lastly, tolerance. And that's, that's a word, I think we all recognize that that's a word that's been seized upon and it means different things than what the Bible describes. But, but it really means mutual deference. It, it means uh, making space for one another, not always ready to criticize this or that or the other. Then at the very bottom of page three, S. Lewis Johnson, and I had the privilege of of studying under him many years ago, but he makes a point that what's at stake is the the honor of the head of the body. I, I think we're missing the point if we don't understand that what's really at stake, what's really at issue here is when we live out and we love as we should, These virtues, we are honoring the one who has redeemed us, who has purchased us. And the body, it's his bride, it's his body. And to the extent that that we cultivate and we maintain, we don't create the unity of the spirit. We are diligent, we're earnest to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the problem, on top of page four, is it is possible, and I've, I've seen this, maybe you have as well, it is possible to have rigorous orthodoxy in our understanding of the scriptures and yet be unloving and to be prideful and to lack humility. I've seen it. I don't know if you've ever exhibited, seen this or not, but there can be a disconnect between our doctrinal profession and our interpersonal practice. So Paul implores us to walk daily, sacrificially, in a manner that's commensurate with our calling this is my paraphrase of of what he's saying starting with humility and then manifesting these other graces james montgomery Boyce, i think made the point and and if, if there is anything at risk i think in a church like christ fellowship and other very doctrinally sound churches it's the first of these two doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy it gives correctness of thought without the vital, practical vitality of the life of Christ. We have rigorous doctrinal orthodoxy here. But without having love, truth without love leads to division. It leads to self-righteousness. It leads to hypocrisy. Practice without doctrine, that's really moralism. That's generally what you would find in a church that's focused on pragmatism, or social justice, or any number of those things. It, it's really, this This second illustration that Boyce points out is, is more what you would find in the pragmatic element of, of evangelicalism or the liberal element of evangelicalism, not in the doctrinally solid element. But practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. That doesn't worry me, but what, what concerns... Elders like, like us in a church like this is in the first one, doctrine without practice. That's, that's really the, the vulnerability that doctrinally sound churches have. So there's these graces, gentleness or meekness, patience, long-suffering, tolerance or forbearance, etc. And then my thesis is that humility is the fountain, literally the fountain from which all of these other virtues flow. And the antithesis of that of course is pride. So let me unpack that for us. So humility. Humility is rooted in a an honest self-assessment, an honest biblical self-assessment. Packer, J.I. Packer makes a, a point. He says your growing desire for God makes you increasingly conscious not so much of where you are in your relationship with Him, with God, as of where As yet, you are not. So, humility is is fostered when we recognize, and and a a humble person will say, "I have so far to go. I have much growth that needs to take place in my life. I'm not content with where I am. I I see the areas of my life that bring dishonor upon the name of Christ, or that really need to to be growing. and And I I urge you, Lord, to bring these things about in my life. That's that's a spirit of humility. And J.C. Ryle said, humility sees more evil in one's own heart than any other in the world. In other words, the finger is not pointing everywhere else. The finger is saying, Lord, help me. Help me. I I want to be the man of God, the woman of God, that that brings honor to you. Yes, I'm concerned about the maturity of my brothers and sisters, but, Lord, would you start with me? Would, Would you please, God, do a work in my heart so that I'm living the life and I'm loving my brothers and sisters as I should. The transition I want to make here is I now want to support why do I say that humility is really so foundational? And it's because of Philippians 2. This is at the bottom of page 4. In Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8, Paul is dealing with essentially the same issues that he's dealing with in Ephesians 4. And he's dealing with what are the unity Factors the the, the points that we have in common as a a body of believers. And how do we maintain this love? How do we live out this love with each other? And Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ, and that's if is not maybe there is, it's a certainty since. You could say since there is encouragement of Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection compassion. I want you to notice in particular as I read this, verses 3 and 8 and then the imperative in verse 5. So, top of page five, Paul. Here's the here's the imperative. In verse one, he's given us the indicative. He's given us the the, the facts that what we have in common. Now, in verse two, he gives us the imperative. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's union. That's that's unity. Then, verse three. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But notice, how do we do that? How do we maintain this unity? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of others. And then in verse 5, a very important verse. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he's our template. Christ is our model. He's, He's our template. What, what is it about Christ that we are to emulate? And then he tells us, what attitude are we to have? Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He, he emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of his divine prerogatives. He, he was in complete submission to the Father, taking the form of a bondservant, the humiliation of Christ, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance of a man, notice in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is that one attribute about Christ that Paul identifies as foundational? Humility, self-effacement, voluntary submission, complete submission to the will of the Father. So what do we do? We are, according to verse 3, with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than ourselves. In verse 5, we are to have this attitude in ourselves which was in Christ Jesus. And what attitude is that? It is he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Spurgeon said, if you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you don't know him. And the point that he's making is, uh, is down uh, at, at the very bottom of this, this excerpt. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. What he's saying is that it, there, there are any number of things that it, once we understand them and embrace them will cause us to be humbled. One of them is to look at our own guilt, our own transgressions before a holy God. But he says an even more powerful factor that will humble our hearts is what has jesus done for us he's given himself for us and this whole paragraph deals with the sufferings of christ i'll let you read this later when, when you have a moment But I, I want you to read all of this but but he, he's dealing with the sufferings of christ on our behalf but spurgeon says a realization of christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt pride cannot live beneath the cross let us sit there and learn our lesson, and then let us rise and carry it into practice. There's a book by Dane Ortland that came out recently, and it's, it's a wonderful book. It's, um, it was actually highly recommended by the, the man that mentored Jeff is his counseling mentor, Randy Patton. Uh, but um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's an excellent book called uh, Gentle and, uh, Meek and Lowly. And in uh, the point that's being made, the thesis of the book he, is he goes to the works by the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin wrote a book in the 17th century called The Heart of Christ. And the, the premise of the book is that what you see in the heart of Christ on earth is precisely the heart of Christ in heaven. He hasn't changed. And when you see what the heart of Christ is like in the Gospels... That's what the heart of Christ is like on our behalf even now as he intercedes for us, as he is our advocate in heaven. He hasn't changed. He's the same person, so to speak, in heaven as he was on earth. His heart has not changed. And what's interesting, Dane Ortland makes the point that in all the Gospels, you've got close to 90 chapters. There's only one section where Jesus says, this is my heart. And it's in Matthew 11, verse 29, that, that I have a heart that is humble and lowly, is gentle and lowly. And Matthew 11 says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, saddle yourself right next to me. Be in submission to me. Let me guide you. Let me direct you. Submit yourself fully to me. That's what it means to take my yoke upon you. Submit yourself to me and learn from me. What what do we learn from Jesus as we submit to him? He says, "I am gent- gentle and humble in heart." That's, that's his heart, gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy my burden is light. What what is it about Jesus that, it, it, this is one of the point that I was making? If if we want to have the same attitude in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians two. It, it Paul tells us there that. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then in Jesus' own words, he says, My heart is humble and lowly. Come and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. The next page, page 6, the King James. This is the the language from which that book was taken. I am meek and lowly in heart. John Calvin said, said this. He said, In the maxims of the law, what does the law show us? The the law of God shows us that God is seen as the rewarder of perfect righteousness. We have none of our own. You realize that that none of us have righteousness. Only Christ has righteousness. And the avenger of sin, that he, he he, he judges perfectly. But in Christ, his face shines out full of grace and gentleness. To poor, unworthy sinners. That's the heart of Christ. His grace shines out. So gentleness. So, it, so all of this, my, my premise is, my thesis is that humility is absolutely foundational to all of these other virtues. So let me unpack that for you. Gentleness. This is the, 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 one of the virtues that, that flows out of, out of humility. And I'm, now I'm going back to Ephesians 4 and looking at these graces that Paul talked about earlier. Jerry Bridges says this about the essence of gentleness. Both gentleness and meekness are born of power and not of weakness. That is so antithetical to our culture. That is so antithetical to what our culture rewards and, and would have us to do. Meekness is born of power uh, uh, and not weakness. We, we tend to think of meekness as, as something that is to be avoided. We, we tend to think of gentleness as something that is that is inferior um, but a Christian is to be gentle and meek because those are God-like virtues. This is what Bridges says. It takes strength, God's strength, to be truly gentle. And unfortunately, there is no grace that I can think of that is less prayed for and less cultivated than gentleness in our culture. Well, why, do, why do we say that it takes power and not weakness to be gentle? Because gentleness means it it is a patient submissiveness to offense. It is free from malice, and it is free from a desire for revenge. Meekness demonstrates controlled strength, the ability to bear reproaches and slights without bitterness and resentment, the ability to provide a soothing influence on someone who is in a state of anger, bitterness, and resentment against life. Gentleness reflects an obedience, submissiveness to God and His will. This, this is when when Jesus did not speak out when He was being tortured. He was in perfect submission to the Father. He spoke not a word. The suffering servant. We we saw that earlier when we looked at Isaiah 53. Perfect submission. He didn't retaliate. He didn't rebel. He came to do the will of the Father in perfect submission. That takes incredible strength. To do that, that's the heart of Christ. Top of page seven gentleness is the opposite of arrogance. Humility, according to this one author, doesn't come from having any convictions, it comes from having the right convictions about the importance of gentleness and respect. And so you see the linkage. In my thesis, number one, is that humility is the foundational virtue from which all these other graces come. My subsidiary thesis to that is that all of these are very much interrelated. They all overlap. They're, they're very much in linkage with each other. When we look at gentleness, we've got to be thinking humility at the same time. Mildness and gentleness to go on, what is it? It's, it's patient trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. And one person described it this way. It's the quality of a man whose anger is so controlled that he's always angry at the right time and never at the wrong time. It describes the man who is never angry at any personal wrong he may receive, but who is capable of righteous anger when he sees others wrong. And the word that's used in the New Testament for this, this wonderful, beautiful attribute of gentleness means power under control. It's, it's just the most noble quality. It, 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 James uses this word to talk about a teachable spirit. A, a person who is ready to learn, to, who has a heart that is open to instruction, to receive the word implanted, which is able to, to save your souls. It, it's this teachable spirit that is without resentment, without anger, and it's able to face the truth even when it hurts, even when it condemns. That's, that's this, this wonderful quality. Top of page 8. Gentleness is so self-controlled that it can willingly and faithfully accept the discipline of learning meekness gentleness says god in this situation you have a purpose you're in control sovereign and ruling over all it recognizes that god is god it recognizes the sovereignty of god the goodness of god the providence of god it recognizes that when we are facing wrong accusations when we are being harassed, when we're being persecuted, that God is every bit as much on the throne now as He was before, and and so we're we're, we're realizing that God, you're in control. You 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 own this situation. You have a purpose. You you you're sovereign. You rule over all. Meekness is seeing everything as coming from God and accepting it without murmuring, without disputing, patiently submitting. To offenses without any desire for revenge or retribution. If that sounds humanly impossible, it's because it is. It's a grace from 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 God Himself. It is it is a godly attribute. It is a, a quality that in its real perfection only comes from God. The second attribute, and, and I'm just unpacking Ephesians four, verse two, I'm just unpacking these words for you, in this little verse that talks about what it is that keeps unity in the body, and I hope, as I'm unpacking this, that you're saying, if this really gets played out on the battlefield of the of the church, well, we are really going to love each other. We are really going to live well with each other. We're really going to honor Jesus Christ, because it will. These qualities, when they're played out on on, on the, the the playing field of the local church, I guarantee will preserve unity in the bond of peace, patience. John Chrysostom, the the one of the the, the foremost church father says patience is the grace of a man who could revenge himself but chooses not to and it's rooted in humility like every other virtue that we're looking at it's rooted in humility al moeller said the christian virtue of patience is rooted in our knowledge of ourselves as redeemed sinners Who we are knowing our own frailty and all too aware of our own faults We must deal with other Christians out of humility rather than pride. Do you see the linkage between humility and these attributes? They they are so tightly knit together. Humility is really the fountain, and all of these things flow from this. Bodhi Bauckham says that a selfless man will be characterized by patience, restraint, and an eagerness to do what is best for the object of his affections. R.C. Sproul, these are R.C. Sproul's words about himself in bold. I cannot fathom how a holy God has been able to put up with me, marring his creature creation to the degree I have for 65 years. For me to live another day requires a continuation of God's gracious patience with my sin. It becomes even more difficult to fathom when we see a sinless being, being being more patient with sinful beings than sinful beings are with each other. I don't know about you, but I, I, I hurt when I was writing this. I, I, every time I would copy and paste this, uh, it, it, it really it, it hurt. It, I'm, I'm, I find myself under conviction even now as, as I read this to you. That I fall so far short of these things. But it's what we have to know. It's what we have to do. It's the kind of people that God has designed us to be. And God himself, top of page 9, is the, the paramount example of patience. Alexander Strzok says, When we are tempted to be impatient with others, we should stop and think about the gracious long-suffering of God with us and are many wrongs against him now what's he thinking about I, i i think what he had in mind was romans 2 4 do you think lightly of the riches of god's kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of god leads you to repentance think of the forbearance the patience of god with us when he could have judged us right on the spot and should have and he would have been entirely right in doing so but what did he do he kept us alive long enough so that we, the Holy Spirit would bring us to a point of repentance so that we might be born again and redeemed and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he didn't just summarily destroy us and judge us. He didn't. His patience is designed to bring us to a point of repentance. The, new, the NLT says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That's exactly what Paul is saying in Romans 2 verse 4. Don't you see this? That, that his patience, his kindness is to turn us from our sin. So Jerry Bridges said, The fruit of patience in all of its aspects, long suffering, forbearance, endurance, and perseverance, is a fruit that is intimately associated with our devotion to God. All character traits of godliness grow out of and have their foundation in our devotion to God. But the fruit of patience grows out of that relationship in a particular way. Patience does not ignore the provocations of others, just like God did not ignore our provocations. It simply seeks to respond to them in a godly manner, in a controlled manner. Top of page 10. A.B. Simpson, we, we were in the laboratory of life, of sanctification, and A.B. Simpson said this Beloved, have you ever thought that someday you will not have anything to try you or anyone to vex you again? There will be no opportunity in heaven to learn or to show the spirit of patience, forbearance, and long suffering. If you were to practice these things, it must be now. This is our opportunity. Here in the laboratory of life and in this world, to, to live out these things, because when we're in heaven, guess what? We won't be frustrated. We won't be difficult. There won't be any difficult people to deal with. But now, God has given us the opportunity to live for Him by His grace and by His power to grow in all of these things. Tolerance, this fourth aspect. Randy Alcorn said, "Truth without grace denigrates into judgmental legalism. Grace without truth." Degenerates, pardon me, into deceitful tolerance, and I think you get the essence of what he's saying. What is the the aspect? We, we all know what this culture means by by tolerance, but what what does the scripture mean by by tolerance? What's being described? And uh, one author, Richard Hollerman, has said this: that it, it's a tolerance. Uh, it's akin to patience. It's certainly, and again, these they're so tightly related to each other. It, it's. It's a tolerance for allowable differences, allowable differences. And some differences must be worked out to foster true unity. Not not every difference is a a line in the sand that has to be drawn. There are some. There are doctrinal points that are worth drawing a line in the sand about. Preferences, inclinations, um, the the, the I wishes of this life are, are not... The, the points at which we, we need to separate from each other and to divide ourselves from each other and to be difficult with each other. We need to exercise patience, tolerance, and gentleness, and it shows up altogether in this time. But he, he goes on to say that, that there must not be divisions. Uh, in regard to non essentials, believers are to bear with one another and be tolerant of others. Uh, next page, page 11. Um, In the middle of the page, Larry Richards says this, it's helpful to remember that while our brothers and sisters may be flawed, and I would say, guess what, they are flawed, I am, and I am flawed as well, that the gracious, loving way with which God puts up with our faults is the model for the way we are to treat others. There must be a tolerance of legitimate differences and growth towards maturity well, an intolerance of known, willful, deliberate, unrepentant sin. The point he's making is that tolerance does not mean that we, we, we are, are patient uh, and, and accepting of impurity in the church. That is not the case at all. It, 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 the Reformation said there were three marks of a pure church. One of uh, a true church. One is the, the pure preaching of the word. The second is the, the uh, the right observance of the sacraments, the ordinances, and the third is, is the, the right observance of church discipline. Those are the three marks of a, of a true church. And so tolerance does not mean that, that we uh, are willing to succumb to impurity or doctrinal aberrations or, or divisiveness or uh, schismatic people. There, there are passages of Scripture that deal with all of those things, and Matthew 18 deals with that. But Matthew 18, when we're dealing with, with dealing with sin in another, doesn't mean preferences. It doesn't mean I, I wish you would behave, you know, in, in, in dress this way or sound this way or, or your children would act in this way or not act that way. It doesn't mean that at all. It, it's talking about sin. It's talking about points with which we really need to, to, to deal with each other. I'm not going to go through this right now, but Alexander Strock has uh, given basic principles for dealing with conflict. Uh, confronting and rebuking and love. And it's, it's very helpful. I'll, I'll let you look at this uh, in, at your own. I was reminded, top of page 12, when we talk about how we deal with differences, you know the names George Whitfield and Charles Wesley. You know those names. And you know that one of them was a rigorous Calvinist and one of them is what we would call an Arminian today. And you know that Whitfield and Wesley had differences. Significant differences, right? Did they love each other? Yes, they loved each other. Did they differ with each other? Yes, they absolutely did differ with each other. But George Whitfield um, was asked if he would see Wesley in heaven. And Whitfield replied, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him, get sight of him. Now that's a Calvinist referring to his armenian brother and he I, I mean a brother i i, I he, they did they had really strong differences and appropriate differences doctrinally, but they didn't hate each other they 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 loved each other biblically in a in a christian way, and they would take issue with each other uh, in strident ways doctrinally. But Whitfield saw Wesley as a dear brother in Christ who, who was serving the Lord with all his vigor, and, and, but he, he disagreed with him. But he didn't hate him, and he, he didn't try to subvert him. He, he didn't try to undermine him. He, he, he expressed his differences, and he said, you know what? This is a brother who's going to be in heaven right along with me. So what I want to do in the time that remains is I'm going to have to, to kind of fly through this, but I want to give you two case studies on... What it means to show humility and to avoid division and foster unity and i'm going to i've got a negative study and a positive study and the reason i'm using a negative and a positive study is i'm reminded joel Beakey uses the term reformed experiential preaching and he says one of the aspects that is pivotal in reformed experiential preaching is um, being realistic and idealistic realistic means these are the way things actually happen and idealistic is this is the way it's supposed to be. And you have to be able to deal with both. It's one thing to to simply say this is the way things are supposed to go and never realize, you know, none of us are going to do that. You realize all of us are going to fall short. So so good preaching needs to, and good teaching needs to recognize how do we deal with failure? How do we deal with sin? How do we deal when we when we need to correct ourselves? So I've got a negative and a positive example. But the negative example is uh, in First Kings 11, And I'm going to hit the high points, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, so bear with me. Go back and look at these passages, but I'm going to break it into bullet points. This is a case where Solomon's son, Rehoboam, showed real harshness and had an opportunity to create unity when there was division and failed miserably. What's interesting is his own father, in Proverbs 15, had said, "...a gentle answer turns away wrath." But a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof as sensible. There was a transition of kingship. Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam was to be the ruler. Okay? 1 Kings eleven forty three. 43. Jeroboam had been a servant of Solomon, and he was a very talented man, and Jeroboam was taken aside by the prophet Ahijah, and Ahijah said, I've got a garment. He ripped this garment into 12 pieces, and he says, You take 10 of them, because I'm going to rip the kingdom out of Solomon's hand, and I'm going to give you 10 pieces, because of the apostasy in Solomon's leadership, because of the intermarriages and the false worship, I'm going to rip ten of the tribes out of his hand, and I'm going to give them to you. And Jeroboam took that to heart, and Solomon became aware of it, and Solomon um, had a hit order out on Jeroboam, and Jeroboam fled to Egypt because, he, he, because Solomon was going was to take his life. So Jeroboam fled to Egypt, and then Jeroboam, when he discovered that Solomon had died, came back. And he went to Rehoboam, and he said, in essence... Your father was really harsh. Your father was really difficult, and he put heavy burdens on us. Work with us, and we will be your servants forever. Literally, that's what he said. Let's make men's. Don't be as harsh as your dad and exercise some patience with us. Don't impose the same heavy burdens on us that your father did, and and we'll, we'll submit to you. Jeroboam said, give me three days. And, and so he said, I'll, "I'll come back to me, and I'll give you your, your answer." And Jeroboam was in uh, Rehoboam was in um, Shechem at the time. So Rehoboam talked to the older guys, and they said, "You know, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you have an opportunity to be a fence mender here. You have an opportunity to to create unity and to show patience. And and you should do that. You should work with them. And." Rehoboam rejected that leader, that that council, and he talked with all the young guys that had grown up with him, and they said, no, no, what what you need to do is man up and say, you know what, my dad was tough, but you haven't seen anything yet. That's that's a paraphrase, but it's pretty close. Uh, Solomon imposed a heavy burden. It's going to get worse with us. So... Rehoboam uh, comes back to, to Jeroboam, and, and Jeroboam says, okay, what's your answer? And, and Rehoboam gives him an incredibly harsh answer. I'm at the top of page 13. And what's interesting about this is uh, this is the second bullet point. He forsakes the advice of the elders, and he declares a message of harshness. Now, as an aside, I've got to be honest with the text. All of this was under the rule of God. God had already ordained that ten of the twelve tribes of was going to to go in a different direction. That does not mean that Rehoboam's behavior was was godly. It was it was not godly. So I have to be I have to be honest with the text, and that's that's what I've given you here. Is Spurgeon says that this breaking up of the kingdom of Solomon into two parts was the result of Solomon's sin and Rehoboam's folly, and yet God was in it. God had nothing to do with the sin or the folly. So what I'm describing for you are, is the wreckage that came from a harsh uh, answer, a, a really difficult answer without any humility at all, and it created enormous division. that lasted for 400 years. So for humanly speaking, what you're seeing is the impact of a lack of humility. It, was it under God's providence? Absolutely it was. The result was the kingdom was divided. You had the united kingdom, and now you've got the divided kingdom. And, and it was divided in First Kings 12. And one commentator says, with a dozen rash words, Rehoboam, the bundling dictator, opened the door for 400 years of strife, weakness, and eventually the destruction of the entire nation. And Rehoboam tried to reunify all of the nations by force. That's a negative example. That's, that does not show humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance. Positive example. I love to use examples of men who fail and then do the right thing. David was a man who failed often, but he repented mightily. 1 Samuel 29 and 30. David, a man who sinned greatly, suffered greatly, experienced God's stern discipline and restorative grace and extended grace to the weary. Backdrop, David did some stuff that was just really wrong. He, he, he endeared himself to, to the Philistines, who were the arch enemies of Israel, by by lying. Uh, he, he, he literally went because he feared Saul, and he went to Achish, the king of Gath, and he pretended like he was insane. That's, that's not a godly thing to do, but that's what he did. And then later, in 1 Samuel 27, he deceived Achish again, and so he actually won the heart of a Philistine king, Uh, by by deception and and he had men under david had men under his control and he found himself in a situation where david and his men were actually being were were accompanying the philistines and if it had gone unabated they would have literally found themselves in conflict with israel itself david and his men in god's providence the philistine ruler said i don't trust that guy that's David. That's, that's, that's David. And, and Achish said, Well, he's, he's, been, he's been a good guy. And the Philistine rulers said, No, he's not going to go with us. That was God's providence, that was God's kindness. And Joel Beakey and, and Michael Barrett said, Mercifully, providence intervened, and God used the ungodly as his agents to keep David from further sin. That's a pretty strange set of circumstances, but David was a man who repented, and we'll see that. So what did David do? He was, he was sent away, and he, he goes to Ziklag, and what he finds is that the city has been totally destroyed by the Amalekites, and his wives had been taken captive, and his own, David's own people mounted up against him and wanted to kill him they were so angry and so frustrated with david's leadership because it was david's doing so to speak that their own country their own city had been completely destroyed because they'd been away from ziklag while the amalekites came and destroyed it so what did david do he strengthened himself in the lord and he, and he he repented and he said god what would you have me to do and god gave him direction. God brought a man into his life that showed him exactly where he should go and what he should do. And David pursued the Amalekites. And what's interesting is that there were 200 of his men that were so tired and they were so weary that they could not cross the river and follow David. And David said, that's fine. You stay. So he left the 200 men who were just literally so wiped out physically that they could not go further. And he left them there. Then David is is literally he go, he's given by God's grace full victory over the Amalekites, and everything that they've they taken is returned to David and his men, and, and his wives are returned, and all the the hostages are returned. So top of page fifteen. What happened then was that. So all of David's men, after they got all of the booty that they had recovered and all of the stuff that the the Amalekites, they had completely laid waste to the Amalekites. Then the 400 men that that had gone with David said, you know what, this is really good stuff. We're going to keep all the booty. And the guys that stayed behind, they get none of this. But they get their relatives back. That's all they get of their relatives back. And then David said, you know what, that's not the way it's going to play out. Those guys were so tired. They stayed behind and watched the stuff that we left them, and they get their share. And we're not going to sit in judgment on them because they were too tired. And he set a precedent that the ones who watched over the the baggage were participants in in the distribution of the of the, the wealth, just like everybody else. The point that that is made is that David was a man who had been humbled mightily by God. He had seen. His own wives taken captive, his city destroyed, his men mount up against him, wanted to take his life. He'd seen that he had wronged God mightily by lying and deceit, and, but he, he sought the, the Lord's wisdom, and, and God humbled him. And, and that's why I love David so much, a man after God's own heart, because he sinned mightily, but David repented in a mighty way. And I, I, I love that model, because David, I can't relate to a guy that never fails, and David failed a lot. But he repented in a mighty way. I can relate to that. That's a wonderful model for me. And, and so what David showed was humility when he said, you know, we're not going to leave these guys that we, we, uh, without. Uh, this was an opportunity for division by dividing those 200 guys that were so wiped out they couldn't enter the field of battle. And he left them. And They, they weren't cowards. They were just physically unable to continue. And David didn't disenfranchise them. He said, no, they're our people. And what he did was he created unity instead of division by showing humility. So I, I show these two examples because there's were passages that I was reading over the last week. And I said, you know, here's a negative example with Rehoboam. And here's a positive example of a, a sinner like David who showed great humility and was doing the right thing. So how do we preserve unity in the body? And, and we do it with humility. And humility gives rise to gentleness. It gives rise to patience. It gives rise to tolerance. And and so we do what brings honor to, to God, and we preserve the unity of spirit by doing the very things that, that, that God has designed us to do, to live with each other and to love each other with humility and these wonderful, beautiful traits. And, and so if you look at Ephesians 4.2, all of that is incorporated in that one verse. Father, I pray that we would indeed be men and women of humility, that we would be those who really have the, the same attitude as the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself and, 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 and did not uh, cling to his divine prerogatives, uh, but showed humility, a, a, a Savior who is meek and lowly, a Savior who is gentle. A Savior who is is, uh, humble. May we be those kind of people, Lord, that we would bring honor to your name. In Jesus, we pray it. Amen.